Hello, welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. It's the Venture Brothers podcast, and today we're covering Season 7, Episode 7. This is your host, Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Ilana Brooklyn, as I am known on Twitter. And I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Stephen Adwell. Hello, Stephen. Hello, how are you doing? Good. So this week's episode, uh, The Unicorn in Captivity, is really a perfect illustration of why we do this show. Uh, we, we just happen to know a lot about the art and the cultural and the New York references in this episode. We were, uh, it, it was one of those moments watching this where I said, not only is this an excellent episode of the show, in fact, it's one of my favorites in quite some time, but it really makes me feel like what we're contributing through the podcast is going to be valuable to folks. Uh, and it also begs the question of why does the team of Doc Hammer and Jackson Public like the same shit that I do? so consistently but um anyway uh so we're also going to be trying a different uh, structure for today's episode i've always kind of hated the uh play-by-play what are they called recap structures that some shows do and i know that we've done that sometimes and i'm actually eager to get folks feedback um about that Uh, But today we're going to try a different structure. We're going to talk about a couple of the big themes from this episode. And then we're going to go into, uh, throughout the actual plot of the show, um, so that we can look at those big themes and how they're represented through the two juxtaposed narratives here. One focused on Rusty Venture and the other one focused on the monarch. Although before I get into that, Stephen, we got an awesome correction from one of our listeners Yes. From last week's episode. So, I uh, wanted to say thanks to Mark uh, Turetsky for letting us know that the building, the sort of townhouse-looking building uh, that Gary and the Monarch use uh, to go down into the guild headquarters is one of the MTA's fake townhouses that they use for subway vents, which makes a ton of sense because um, all kinds of subway systems use kind of fake houses uh, to sort of disguise necessary structures super cool and thank you for reaching out to us on twitter about that i i really love hearing from our listeners so keep keep that up um yeah and let us know what you think about the format so let's get started on our themes sure so uh the first thing that we sort of noticed is the idea of the establishment limiting progress and this is something that we'll talk about in more detail in the episode but it's really noticeable uh or I, i should say it's really significant to the sort of the larger world building of the show that the OSI, you know, which has previously mostly been about kind of, you know, containing this, the super science versus super villainy thing. Um, here is preventing super science from genuinely transforming the world in order to protect the sort of economic, political and military status quo. Uh, although, you know, on the other hand, like, Rusty didn't test his teleportation device, and it killed people. So, you know, potato, potato. Classic Rusty. The other theme is, I wanted to look at was individual creativity versus being a team player. Uh, another way that this episode frames it is being an insider of the system versus working outside the system. Um, and that sort of parallel also gets played out through theme of innocence which in this show innocence is really equated with existing outside the system versus corruption which is represented by people working inside the system or the system itself 
So I, you know, this episode really wanted to make sure that nobody could possibly miss the metaphorical significance of the title of the episode. Uh, and it like literally tells you right up there um, that Malcolm is the unicorn working alone at his art and he's doing that out trying to get past the limitations put on him by a corrupt system of the guild. In this case, it's the guild sponsored heist itself has been corrupted. It's a heist within a heist. And then Rusty, another unicorn, as he's told within the plot itself um, by the uh, mysterious red-robed figure. He's the unicorn, the, ma the unique mad scientist existing outside the structures of OSI. And OSI has really become here a stand-in for the military-industrial complex. And Rusty is put to make a moral choice between independence and danger uh, versus corruption and worldly pleasure. And then the last big theme of the episode is really showing the dehumanization of people who aren't men and how commonly that is a factor of the systems that people are participating in. And, you know, we see that in the orgy scene. That is not to say that orgies necessarily do that at all. You can totally have a feminist radical badass orgy, but that's not what was depicted in this particular scene. Um, you know, we look at, at the use of Dr. And Mrs. The Monarch uh, representationally in that scene. Uh, and presto, a new character introduced this 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 uh, episode also really shows that and we even have things like the or orphan meat and you know children's bodies is being treated as materials for others to consume speaking of consuming things let's get started so uh the episode opens with uh the ventec science team that's uh rusty uh billy and pete uh teleporting an apple across a room uh which you know, uh, Billy wants to, like, treat with a bit more gravitas and, as a result, gets called uh, Hobbit Oppenheimer, uh, which is, of course, a reference to Robert Oppenheimer, uh, one of the creators of the um, atom bomb and uh, someone who had a history of very witty and erudite um, sort of famous words. You know, he's the, the um, I am become death destroyer of worlds. Uh, uh, from the Bhagavad Gita that he recited when they did the atomic tests. The fact that they used an apple, I, it was such a, I mean, God, that was such a great little metaphorical touch too. The, an apple, of course, represents the forbidden fruit of knowledge. It could not be more literal than that. And I also thought about Isaac Newton and that mythology around him seeing an apple falling out of a tree. So an apple being a moment of scientific innovation and, recogni and recognition. Yeah, and it's also, um, and this is why, you know, I love Venture Brothers, because uh, the scene is also not just a reference to the fly, because, you know, they're teleporting from two pads, and, you know, oh no, what happens if there's contamination? Um, but the fact that, like, they've all seen the fly, <laughs> and, you know, like, they don't want to eat the apple or step on the teleporter until, like, they're absolutely sure that it works. Um, and speaking of which, this is where, you know, speaking of the kind of uh, team player versus individual thing, you know, in their response to this sort of successful result, we really see that Billy is an actual scientist, whereas Rusty is a mad scientist, because Billy is like, okay, we've got a positive result. Now we need to, like, iterate... 
you know, try out multiple combinations, do it, you know, make sure our N values and our P values are good. Whereas like Rusty is all about like, okay, we're going to mass production. Let me write the press release, you know, and, and show the world. Um, I mean, yeah, I love Billy is like, he wants to test it for months before he even considers trying it on mice. And Rusty immediately goes to testing it on mankind. Right, which they're still arguing about when the captain, uh, wearing his uh, Steve Jobs uniform, which is, you know, appropriate for the sort of, myth, you know, mythic inventor, entrepreneurial figure who, you know, let's say maybe not as smart as he thought he was, uh, accidentally transports himself across the room. But not his food. Yes, and... Uh, you know, as we'll find out later in the episode, he is really, really lucky that it worked out exactly the way it did because things could have gone so, so much worse. Um, so we cut from there to uh, Tiny Eagle, who is spying on their creation, reporting in um, to, at the moment, unknown uh, compatriots and... Uh, as he is attempting to extract himself from uh, Ventec Towers, he runs into Brock's face and gets squished like a bug. Which kind of hurts. I, You know, based on his costume, I thought for a minute there he was a good guy because his costume is straight out of Gachaman, a.k.a. Science Ninja Team Gachaman, which got released in the U.S. Uh, under the name Battle of the Planets. Or I remembered seeing it under, like, G-Force Guardians of Space, but basically it was an anime where all of the characters who were heroes had the same outfit as Tiny Eagle, but in different colors. Right. Uh, and Tiny Eagle is actually uh, not a new character for this episode. Uh, he is a long-term sort of ally of Phantom Limb, going back to Season 1, Episode 10, uh, the Tag Sale episode, oh. uh, where Phantom Limb mentions that... Uh, Tiny Eagle told him that uh, the Monarch and, and Dr. Girlfriend were breaking up. And then in Season 2, Episode 1, uh, where he's intercepting the Monarch's messages from prison on behalf of Phantom Limb. So that might have some interesting repercussions going forwards. Yeah, Phantom Limb being tied to the heist within a heist is, an in, is, is a good point. Wouldn't yeah. make a lot of sense. Um, so meanwhile... Uh, the Monarch doesn't like the idea of filling in on a team. Um, and I was, like, initially like, oh no, please let him not be backs backsliding on supporting Dr. Mrs. The Monarch, because, like, clearly this is her, like, having gone out of her way to, like, pull some strings on this, uh, and he's being difficult. And when she goes to reassure him, I, I love it. She's like, she's like, she says, you're a solo act, a precious unicorn. And, you know, re really just, again, stating the theme of the episode. Uh, but it's also such like a coddling of the male ego, to put it in those terms. It's kind of amazing he didn't recoil at least a little bit. Well, you know, he is a male artist, and they tend to sort of go for that sort of thing and expect that sort of thing, uh, mm -hmm. sadly. Um, and, you know, I know for, like, my own purposes, like, my interest immediately ticked up when uh, we found out that it was a heist that the team yes. that he's going on, which is like, I'm a big fan of heist movies um, and TV shows. So like anytime that there's a heist, it usually means like a lot of action, a lot of tension, a team building, you know, like getting the team together, you know, wheels within wheels, you know, all, and, and very tight plotting. And, and this episode uh, did not 
uh, lack for that. And how convenient that the Venture Brothers world already has an evil Dean Martin to play the organizer of the Ocean's Eleven style host, since the old Ocean's Eleven movie was starring Dean Martin. No, did not disappoint. Did you like Ocean's Eight? Ocean's Eight? Oh yeah, yeah. There was really no heterosexual explanation for almost anything that happened in that movie. <laughs> and so I salute it. Um, now, the villain team is meeting in Trump Tower, which I love. We recognize it because of the giant globe statue right on top of Columbus Circle. And, like, that is a Trump Tower. So, of course, the villains have a hotel room there. I'm sorry, have a, uh, have a, um, a swinging pad there, which is just a really gorgeous interior design. Uh, and this pad is the uh being being lived in by copycat and the room is 4444 and 44 is a shorthand for the word copy so that was a little joke there okay that makes then the sense. team the team consists of copycat who's basically evil dean martin um dot com uh, who's a vaguely tron ish slash remote minority report hacker Tunnel Vision, who's like the guy with the drills for hands, and I kind of thought of G.I. Joe character Tunnel Rat. Presto Changeo, who I have a lot of thoughts about that we'll get to later. Um, he definitely has recalls to the Impossible Man from Fantastic Four. Uh, Plastic Man, in terms of his physical uh, ability to stretch into any shape and his zaniness. But also the Joker. Yeah, he's because wearing clown he, makeup. He's very clown makeup. But also the Joker, because he's voiced by Mark Hamill. So he literally has a slightly lighter and goofier version of the Joker's voice. His color scheme also reminds me of Mr. Mixelzoplik, who is a eighth, what, like a 20th dimensional uh, elf that, that uh, makes Superman's life really challenging. And this face paint makes me think of the Nowhere Man character from the Yellow Submarine movie, um, that, that exact eye makeup. And then when Brock confronts him later, Brock calls him Toy Man. And Toy Man, of course, is a different supervillain, but what have you. But yeah, this character has a lot going on, not just the different characters he's drawing from, but I think there's a lot happening with him in terms of his own symbolism, which I'll go into later. We also have... Uh, Ramburglar, who is uh, a play on uh, the Hamburglar. Um, and Driver X, who is pretty much straight out of Speed Racer. Like, there was basically no change there. Um, so, uh, just to sort of, you know, a bunch of these characters are new, but not all of them are. So, uh, copycat we've actually seen before. Uh, he played a major role in screwing over the monarch in season six. Uh, basically the monarch and, and Dr. Mrs. were like having an argument about the monarch, uh, trying to like illegally, um, uh, arch Dr. Venture. So... Like, Copycat contrived to have the Monarch, um, basically, like, he spilled something on his, on his clothing, and then, like, offered to give him a change of clothes, because his apartment is right downstairs from Wide Whales, um, and then while the Monarch was changing his clothes, um, Copycat basically put on his costume, and, like, made a bunch of duplicates of himself, and, like, busted up, uh, Ventec headquarters, while simultaneously showing Dr. Mrs. the Monarch uh, what, quote-unquote, the Monarch was doing in an effort to break up their marriage. So, 
it's kind of suspicious already that, like, the copycat wanted the Monarch specifically. Uh, .com and Tunnel Vision we've seen in uh, background scenes in the, in the Guild of Calamitous Intent, uh, specifically um, in the uh, uh, Jaws uh, homage uh, episode, uh, Tunnel Vision was the guy who tried to claim the uh, fake bounty. Um, on the Island of Rats. Um, and, you know, they explain their, uh, their heist is, in fact, they're going to heist Ventec Tower and steal the teleportation device, uh, that Tiny Eagle told them about. And this is, you know, the monarch getting to perform his, uh, his expertise and his art. Uh, and he can either do this inside the group as sanctioned by the guild but of course what he wants to do is to go solo and express himself outside of it although i also have a question for you like why do you, why do you think the um the guild is so invested in getting this is because it's the dangerous weapon that we all that that osi thinks it's going to be or um, is there anything else happening i mean keep in mind right we learned laps excuse me last episode that one of the major ways that the guild finances itself is that it takes a cut of the stuff that its villains steal. So, you know, you're talking about one of the most valuable technologies in existence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it, you know, I think that's kind of the difference between them and OSI is like OSI is doing this to protect the status quo. The guild just wants to sort of profit from, you know, from uh, essentially parasitical activity. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even though they also are clearly involved in super science because they make you know electricity guns and stuff like that. Um, you know, they they're operating as this weird like Amway like corporation. So uh, back inside uh, Ventec HQ, uh, Brock is worried about security, whereas Rusty just like can't stop thinking about all the fame and attention he's going to get for um, teleport, uh, you know, for, for announcing that he solved teleportation. In fact, he says, like, this is the biggest thing of, of my career, of my life. And you, you, you described him as basically being more uh, motivated here than yeah. we've seen him in a while. Like, uh, it, it's especially like a very singular focus. Like, we've seen Rusty uh, do super science in the past, and he tends to kind of half-ass it a little bit. Like, he'll, you know, do as little work as possible. Um, and he certainly, like, wants to make money off of it. Uh, but it was always, like, a very kind of, like, short-term, you know, get the contract, pay the rent, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, pay for his drug habit. Um, whereas this is, like, very much about him and, like, his reputation. Like, he wants to win a Nobel. He wants to be recognized. And I think this is motive. This brand new motivated Rusty is because his dad died for real. Like there was some more final uh, closure on that. So now he's thinking about his own legacy. Yeah, um, I can see that. So Brock takes Rusty to another floor of Ventec Towers, and here we get a really weird bit where. Initially, we see, like, a corporate office space, and there's a blonde receptionist it's who another Brock dummy talks corp. to. 
yeah, it's it's a Dummy Corp uh, HQ. Um, and initially, I thought that this was Honey Gold, who is an OSI operative that we've seen before, who also has this sort of really big uh, blonde hairdo. Yes, that's um, what I thought. So, like, I got really confused and weirded out when, like, Brock stuck his thumb in her mouth and, like, she parted down the middle and turned out that, like, it's an actual OSI um, operation behind her. And I was wondering, like, is this a total recall thing? And I was wondering, like, could you think of a, a reference? Total recall. Yeah. I mean, but, I, you know, I also just thought this was really a, an example of the theme of the dehumanization of women and other people who aren't, who aren't men in the episode because she's literally just a door and how he accesses the office is basically through violating her if she was real and she's not even a person again like why is the receptionist that's being dehumanized and necessarily taking a female form this is all just because of the eyes of the beholder who they expect to be seeing it as a man right um and this is the point at which hunter gathers and brock uh, tell Rusty that it's time we had the talk, which normally means... Yeah, so the particular wording of time we had the talk is often a place where you then have a parent go and tell their kid where babies come from. And in this case, it's a place where they have their first conversation. That's really the contrast in this episode between innocence and experience. You have, you know, the idea that OSI is privy to the secret truth about how the world really works, and now they're going to tell Rusty that information. Um, and really, the fact that Brock has been hiding this all this time, I think this could be a major break in their relationship. Also, as soon as Hunter Gathers showed up, I just thought to myself, how many voices is Jackson Public doing in this episode? The answer is a great many. Uh, yeah, I mean, Brock has, like, hidden stuff from Rusty before, but I can't think of an example in which he's, like, gone against Rusty's, like, best interests so dramatically. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, Rusty actually feels betrayed. Like, he's been betrayed before, but he hasn't really classified it this way. He actually calls him Judas later in the episode. Yeah. There's like interesting Christ imagery I'm going to get into then, too. But, um, yeah. Yeah, like, he, it sticks. Like, he's not just mad in one scene. He is mad throughout the episode. He does not change his opinion on that. Yeah. So, uh, we then uh, cut back to the heist planning. So, Tunnel Vision is going to dig under the... Um, excuse me. It's going to dig under the uh, Ventec headquarters using the uh, A-Train to... Mask the Sound, which I'm pretty sure was used in the taking of Pelham 123. I can't remember. Um, Presto uh -huh. is going to shape change and slither through the vents in order to basically patch a um, sort of uh, virus into the uh, security headquarters that will allow .com to take over the system so that, you know, no one calls security. Uh, when that happens, Rambler Ram Burglar, wow, that's hard to say, uh, <laughs> is going to smash in and grab the loot. Driver X works as the wheelman, and the monarch is demoted to lookout. Um, and this naturally kind of pisses off the monarch because, you know, he believes he should be in charge of, of Rusty because he's been arching him for decades. He knows the man inside and out, down to his sleep number, which is a 25 soft, in case you were curious. 
Uh, and he wants to, like, do the, like, the classic villain stuff. He wants to, like, make an aerial assault and give a big speech and laugh maniacally, as he is very good at. Um, as opposed to, you know, their stuff, which is very sort of professional but utilitarian. Uh, and mm -hmm. notably, the team does not react well to the monarch uh, sort of trying to take over and grandstanding. I think you mean artistry. Sure. Well, I think, you know, it's a bit of both. Now, this is where we get to one of my favorite, favorite scenes of the episode. And, you know, I really want to sort of stop and talk about this for a minute. So, uh, Hunter Gathers tells Rusty that he wants him to scrap the teleportation. And what he explains is that, you know, look, if you establish teleportation, you know, that massively disrupts the economic foundations of, you know sort of late capitalism, right? You don't need oil anymore because no one needs to drive anywhere. You don't need transportation anymore because you can instantly, you know, move from one place to the other. So the auto industry goes, the, you know, airline industry goes, uh, and so on and so forth. And actually, uh, one of the things that the, um, that the AV club mentioned that I thought was actually a good parallel is that this is fairly similar to the, urban legend of the gasoline pill which goes back I mean to like the early 20th century uh, which is this idea that you know someone's invented a pill that turns water into gasoline but it's being suppressed by the powers that be because you know the oil companies would go bankrupt um, and I think this is particularly inter interesting for a show that's very much about like the promise of super science in the 60s because, you know, one of the things that I'm always interested in from a genre perspective is if super science exists, why hasn't it dramatically transformed society? You know, we, yes, the, the you know, superheroes and supervillains and the Venture Brothers have, like, all kinds of flashy weaponry and, and flying cars and stuff, but, like, New York City looks like New York City. You know, Colorado looks like Colorado. Um, and this is, like so well known within genre fiction that it's got a TV trope of its own called Reed Richards is Useless uh, which is you know dealing with the problem that you know to use the title example uh, in Marvel Comics you've got all of these super scientists like Reed Richards who invent you know who have the capability to invent stuff that should you know wipe out world hunger cure all disease you know they regularly travel intergalactically like humanity should be completely revolutionized by this but because the like conceit of the Marvel Universe is that it's our universe with superheroes in it that they can't have the impact that they're supposed to have which either leads you into this weird kind of like maybe Reed Richards is actually kind of a villain because like, he's holding back inventions that could save lives and, you know, advance the, you know, humanity as we know it. Um, or, you know, all kinds of sort of, like, not really satisfying explanations that, like, you know, yes, there's super science, but it's, like, too expensive or impractical to mass produce. But then you kind of think, well, if you're smart enough to design the stuff, like, invent the stuff, surely you can figure out how to mass produce it. Like, that's the less difficult step. Anyway, and this really changes the way that we think about the OSI, right? Absolutely. 
you know, if the that, OSI, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, if the OSI is doing this, then the OSI has a specific mission, which is to maintain the status quo. Um, and I think that it really makes OSI not just, oh, hey, this is like a G.I. Joe parody. OSI is a stand-in for the military-industrial complex that wants to support the continuation of the oil industry and therefore the end of the world. Right. And, um, you know, especially in comics, you know, one of the things that this sort of reminded me of is uh, Warren Ellis, who is a very famous British comic book writer. He did uh, The Authority. He did Stormwatch. He did Planetary. Um, he mm -hmm. writes like 10 issues and then drops something. Um, mm -hmm. One of my pet peeves about the guy. Uh, anyway, but like one of his things in The Authority and Wildstorm, etc., is that like, the powers that be are against human advancement because, like, the world that we live on is based on the idea of, like, scarce resources. And mm -hmm. once you actually establish, you know, fully automated uh, luxury, luxury gay, space, gay space communism, yes. we, got, we got to have the full acronym there, um, that, you know, they'll come tumbling down. Um, and I think this becomes, like, you know, the, the, the anvils are dropped with ever more uh, force from even greater heights when uh, Rusty uh, meets what I call the Silhouette Committee uh, who refer to themselves as the Knights Templar, the Illuminati, the Rothschild Bilderberg Super Sentinels which, you know, that's got to be the Venture Brothers version of Well, definitely the Hellfire Club from X-Men Right, because the Hellfire Club built the Sentinels and the Rothschilds and the Bilderbergs uh, Bilderberg Group are like major financial European players who show up in various conspiracy theories. And generally those conspiracy theories can be very tinged with anti-Semitism. So I always caution people when uh, using specifically the name Rothschilds to talk about uh, to talk about conspiracies. Like in actuality, in the real world, the conspiracy is capitalism. And that doesn't necessarily have a Jewish name, boys and girls. Right. Um, you know, you can also think of things like um, trilateral commission, like, uh, you know, the... Um, what's the name of the group that meets at Davos that always gets protested? Yeah, the my peeps protest that shit. No, yeah, uh, but, like, I, I don't know the name of the organization. I just know the place they, they have their, their yeah. skiing getaways. Yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, and, you know... Oh, uh, and who are the people that we hear uh, of the silhouettes? Well, one person we know for sure is Mr. Brisby, uh, i.e. Mr. Brisby, who is this show's version of, Mr. Of, of Walt Disney. We met him in, like, season one. <laughs> it's just an amazing... I think, like, uh, season one, episode three or something like yeah, that? Yeah, very early. When it, he, he invented the Brisby Bee, and... You know, he has the amazing line, like, if you were stuck underneath an unstoppable metal Lincoln for 24 hours, you wouldn't look so good either. Just we, an amazing voice, an amazing voice and character design. But yeah. yeah, that voice is so specific. And we see him go by the orgy party in his motorized wheelchair later. So we know, like, Mr. Brisby is a piece of this in some way. Right. And what's interesting is, like, rather than threatening him, they invite him to, like, join the secret powers of the universe um, and co-opt him. And that's really an example of the innocent outsider being offered forbidden knowledge. He is finally 
exceptional enough and special enough to be qualified to be brought into the inside of the system to know the secret truth. Right, but in order to get that, he has to give up his innocence and, you know, the the thing of quality that he can give to the world. To eat the apple of forbidden knowledge and to right. be expelled. <laughs> but anyway. Um, uh, we th- then yeah. get, like, a quick little scene where uh, Gary is sparring with... A, have they ever given the... Manolo. The, Manolo. Um, and, like, you know, he's speaking with him in Spanish, which is like, okay, you know, considering that we were complaining about this a couple weeks ago, like, that's a little bit of characterization. Like, we at least know that, like, you know, Gary socializes with this guy, you know. He doesn't say anything back, though. Yeah, um, I, I, that's a good point. Just hire a, a, a Mexican uh, speaking, uh, Spanish-speaking voice actor guys. Just, just do that. Um, so while that's happening, uh, get, uh, the monarch call, uh, calls in because it turns out that he can't um, do the aerial reconnaissance role that he's been assigned to without his, uh, what he calls his Glengarry wing which I just love as like a reference to the uh, the Glengarry leads from Glengarry Glen Ross. Uh, so it's his top drawer leads. Uh, I wonder if uh, Malcolm studied drama in college. We don't actually know what his major was. But it sure seems like he did. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I think he was actually in creative writing because uh, in the episode uh, where we see Rusty at college... He mentions um, uh, that, like, he was in a, a writing class with someone who, like, had this big poem about the monarch, and he crapped on it. Wow. So, okay, yeah, he was probably a creative writing major. Um, okay, so we then cut to uh, Rusty wearing both a tuxedo and a blindfold. Uh, which is an interesting combination, getting driven out to a big house uh, through woods and into the hills. And it's the cloisters. Um, I, I, you know, it definitely what we're seeing is references a number of things, but the building he enters, and then certainly once we see some specific scenes from the interiors, like the atrium spaces, he's being driven to the cloisters uh, museum. Well, in this particular show, it's not a museum, it's a house. Uh, you may have seen the cloisters in its last animated form watching the amazing TV show, The Gargoyles, that cartoon from the 90s. Um, the Cloisters Museum is owned by the Met, but it consists of actual cloisters that were brought to New York from Western Europe. The abbeys were literally disassembled stone by stone and shipped to New York City by the Rockefellers and reassembled in 1934. Um, and you can visit it, and you should. It's actually one of the, the coolest things in Manhattan. Uh, it's way uptown. and um, You can get there by the bus. You can, or by train, even though it's a little bit more of a schlep, but it's worth it. Um, and the collection itself actually is interesting. I only learned this doing this most recent merger. The collection itself, not the, not the buildings, but the actual artifacts, was originally amassed by a lone collector who wasn't even a particularly rich person himself. And it's interesting because the, the way the uh, museum has always been presented is that it was this project of the Rockefellers and then J.P. Morgan chipped in, i.e. a project of people who are the creators of the biggest banking systems and financial systems in the world. 
But the actual creative work was actually done by a, a lone, inspired individual, not unlike the monarch himself, perhaps. Right. So when Rusty arrives at the cloisters, he is greeted by a, a valet in knee breeches, stockings, and a powdered wig. Uh, this is this deliberate anachronism is like very Hellfire Club from the Chris Claremont comics. Uh, and Ilana, you noticed something about this. Yeah, the, all the valets have the same face. And this is the first moment that I think it's clear that something uncanny is happening and that perhaps what we're seeing isn't what's happening in the real world. Maybe this isn't real. I mean, there are clones yeah, in this that, world. That's the thing but... is that in this show, like, I legitimately wasn't sure because I was like, well, Copycat can clone himself. <laughs> like... How do we know that there are other people who can make identical copies of themselves? But, yeah, but yeah. It's, definitely an, it's definitely a sign of the uncanny in it. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, like, as uh, Rusty's being driven up there, like, he's really taking Brock's betrayal personally. Like, he calls him a Nazi. Um, I mean, I, I, he calls him Judas, like, and I just earlier, and that's just a specific thing he hasn't said before and he's mad and he should be you know like even if Brock is right and we don't know that Brock is uh, Brock should have talked with him about this before yeah um, so uh, we then like when they open the doors we go into an extended eyes wide shut reference which was uh, sort of came out of left field uh, as I was watching this sitting in a public cafe uh, and so starting <laughs> so to feel sorry. like a creep. Uh, but I was like, I'm so sorry. instantly I was like, oh, okay, this so like, we're really going Hellfire Club. Like, not just the stuff that they could get away with in the Comics Code Authority days. Uh, but yeah, there's uh, a whole bunch of masked rich people fucking. Um, and it's all and pixelated, but uh, turns out that the version that was shown on Adult Swim after midnight uh, was in fact... Not pixelated, because no. the truth is, uh, all animators are, in fact, perverts. I, I watched it, uh, the recorded version that was shown after Men I Don't Adult Swim. Oh, really? Swim. Yeah. I was lied to. Hold on. God, I'll the internet is wrong about sex. What? Who would have guessed? Um, I, I, that's interesting. I, I don't know. I just, what, I saw exactly the same thing you did. Okay. Um, and I, and I watched it on TV, rec- recorded, but I, I don't know. Um. Can I just say the mask designs are gorgeous. Uh, the more you notice them, the more I'm just like, wow, they did really great costume work in this episode. Um, the different masks are just referencing different art periods, different cultures. And, you know, they're all carnival masks. And, you know, there's certainly people wearing plague masks and the same mask as in Eyes Wide Shut. But these masks get seriously cool. Yeah. Um so, uh, meanwhile, uh, over at the heist, um, uh, Tunnel Vision gets brought over to the right spot in the sewers by Presto, who's working as a gondola, uh, and you had something you wanted to say about this point. Yeah, I love Presto. I, I really do. But Presto's whole <laughs> thing is, Presto keeps, just, their whole thing is shape-changing. You know, Presto turns their, bo- uh, their body into a vehicle, um, and it, it turns into a snake. Presto turns into a stair climber later. Presto turns into a jack-in-the-box. Presto is doing more work than anybody else in this episode. And I think a lot of the visual gags are totally, like, they're, 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 they're Looney Tunes-worthy 
you know, Joker from Batman when he's being written as like as funny. It's definitely in there. And so when he gets unceremoniously killed by Brock later, I was really upset. Um, he's, you know, just Presto is super creative and it feels that ah. everybody is constantly kind of creeped out and grossed out by, by Presto. Okay, so I, I found the thing. Uh, the iTunes and Amazon versions are uncensored. Wow. That's a bold now, move on granted, the part. This is based on a single uh, AV Club commentator, but I just oh. wanted to say I'm not crazy. I was basing this off stuff. I never would have. I would never say that. I'm simply saying that the internet is full of lies. Sure. But um, I do think it's interesting that like you really like Presto because like reading the comments, most people <laughs> seem to hate Presto. Yeah, those people are wrong. I mean, the voice, like, do, how do you not love an even zanier version of the Joker's voice? And the thing is, Presto is supposed to be, like, disconcerting. Being able to shape change your body at that level is disconcerting. But it's so imaginative. And those commenters are just as bad as everybody in this episode. They treat Presto like shit. And Presto is continually being dehumanized by other people. And that's what, like, Presto is doing to their body, but that doesn't mean that Presto isn't a person anyway. Like, just because Presto can look like a gondola doesn't... Does, does, does Presto not still bleed? <laughs> well, uh, Blue we'll blood, find out. as we see yeah. later. Um, so, meanwhile, uh, .com and Driver X are sitting in the Con Ed truck uh, outside, which is a perfect disguise because everyone knows that Con Ed trucks spend, you know, upwards of, you know, <laughs> 10 hours parked on one given location on uh, New York City Street at any given time. Uh, meanwhile, the monarch still doesn't have his wings, so he's, like, phoning in his aerial reconnaissance from on top of the next uh, uh, Trump Tower. Uh, I'm so, sorry. I'm still laughing at your joke. I just, like, please, like, let none of my friends who work for that union listen to this. Anyway, continuing. Oh, I don't blame the union. That's entirely because Con Ed is just a poorly organized company. Um, so, Rusty is, you know, it's management's fault, not not labor. It always is management's fault. Thank you. Yeah, they don't get to decide the scheduling. Um, so no. Rusty is overdressed at the orgy. Uh, no one is talking, which I thought was a weird detail. Like it always—that's the way it was in the movie. But I always think, like in real life, you know, you need to have like a lot of communication for an orgy to work. So yeah, but you're talking no about—you're to... talking about a good orgy. What we're seeing here is not a good orgy. What we're seeing here is a performed orgy where it is powerful men doing things to other people's bodies. Right. So, it is a Hollywood orgy. Yes. Like, I don't mean an orgy happening in the real town of Hollywood. I mean the way that Hollywood in films shows orgies. Right. But uh, also, it's... It's not. It's not an. It's not an equal opportunity. It's not. A, it's not a place of opportunity and equality. Like this particular orgy is constructed for the men to demonstrate their mastery over the bodies of others, and like you don't. There aren't. You don't see women. Yeah, I didn't have it in the biggest in positions um, of power here. Yeah, I was gonna say I didn't have it in the, like the biggest window, as I said, public cafe. But yes. I was like, I don't see. Like it seems very hetero. Yep. Uh, and like clothes male naked females of CNMF. Yep. Um, I think that sounds right, yeah. Again, like that goes back to the the sort of idea that the, the women who are participating aren't actually, they're, they're not part of the same system that the men are part of. And they're essentially support, they're like support staff, they're the hired help, they're not actually in charge. Right. Uh, and we do see a woman riding a zebra. 
We do. And I think the zebra is sort of a metaphor for the uncontrollable uh, n- nature. And like a lot of the time, it, it, I, you, I kind of almost think it should have been like a person riding on a unicorn. But I, that might be too much of a spoiler of the later unicorn reveal yeah. scene. I mean, yeah, we like should, you, you can't we ride explain. on a zebra. That's not yeah, a thing you, you can do. They can't actually be tamed. Like they're, yeah. they are wild animals. They don't domesticate. Um, uh, he then goes and gets a drink from the bar at The Shining and this is where like remember how I said though like there's certain things about the Venture Brothers that like makes me figuring out the the, like boundaries of reality a little bit difficult like Mm. I wasn't sure like okay is this the bartender from The Shining because the creators like The Shining or because Rusty's seen The Shining or both well, we're already in a Kubrick movie, right? We're in Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. So I think it's probably the bartender from The Shining. No, no, it's absolutely that. I'm just saying, like, is it... Okay, th- this gets into, like, our, our thing later about, like, you know, is Rusty creating all of this or was it programmed? Yeah. But, like, does Rusty see this particular bartender because he's seen, the, like, Rusty Venture has seen The Shining... Or is it the bartender from The Shining because, like, Public and Hammer really like Kubrick and want to continue the homage? See what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Yeah. No, I um, do. So, as he's at the bar, uh, he's, like, eating some canapes, which turn out to be uh, orphan sashimi. You know, Rusty Venture, I, this, maybe this is a sign of character growth because... In season one, I believe, he, he made a machine that had a small part of an orphan in it many it years ago. It was the ago. heart of a neglected orphan, I believe. Just a small piece of one. So I guess this is character growth, that he's now revolted by that. Yeah. But again, dehumanization of people. People, like, children being treated as meat, right? Right. And while he's puking his guts out, uh, he runs into a naked but masked Dr. Mrs. the Monarch... Uh, and this is where I was like, initially, I hadn't yet caught on to none of this is real. Well, I um, hadn't either, no. So I was like, okay, like, this seems out of place for her at this point in her career. Like, is she infiltrating this event? Is she, like, it, are we going to get some sort of explanation that, like, the OSI and the Guild are secretly all part of the same global conspiracy? Like, what's going on? That's, what I, that's what I thought we were about to find out based on that yeah um but like you start to see there's certain like clues right that like she's you know she doesn't come out and say like i am a prostitute but like she's talking as if like she is as you said hired help and well, she's, she's i mean no, she says that they're working girls oh right, right right okay yeah uh and she says that you know they're not part of this uh i love this term pseudo religious capitalist crony club uh and like just to like be any more clear about who you know who this like secret orgy is of like it's literally like big pharma big oil and big tobacco you know in a four way um yeah. as if like in a basically the way i was thinking about it's like it's an erotic version of one of those thomas nass cartoons yes. where all of the different trusts are like giant fat men um probably yes. not that different no, um, you're right. This is this is what they would have done had they had the rights to be able to do so on a paper in that day and age. Right. Uh, so, well, at least a, a paper that that was sold um, above the, the counter. Co- uh, yes, yes. 
so meanwhile at the heist. Meanwhile on the heist, Presto Changeo gets in, almost runs into Brock, like literally, uh, and it turns it, and Presto turns into helper, and that's a super smart move. Like what a brilliant solution to this. Um, but Presto doesn't actually know what helper does or sounds like. So, you know, when it makes the wrong beeping noise, uh, Brock knows what's up. But I think it's also interesting that he, that that Presto becomes helper because helper is this constantly put upon, not human, but clearly sentient and emotional. And, and as we've seen from the most from a recent episode, like has the potential to be fully human, really, in its feelings and development. Like helper is consistently dehumanized. Right. Um, the other thing that I noticed that um, Presto Changeo didn't get right is uh, it can't change its coloring. And this is a a direct reference to the Impossible Man. Yes. um, Who uh, is kind of Marvel's, like, vaguely rip-off version of of, uh, Mr. Mixelpick. And his one weakness is that he can't change colors. And in a New Mutants comic, uh, the shape-shifting alien mutant robot called Warlock, uh, was able to beat him in a shape-shifting contest by turning into a Transformer. Uh, but, like, in the, the like, black, you know, white, red, mm-hmm. and blue of the Transformers. They actually are, yeah. Um, costume. And, like, that just drove uh, the Impossible Man uh, ballistic. So I was like, oh, that's a really clever thing that, like, one of the things that, like, Twigs is wrong to Brock is that he's like did they repaint you like why are you all of a sudden like uh, you know mint green and <laughs> and you know uh, and, and, and villain purple yeah that's great uh so as this is all like going down um the um I'm sorry I'm forgetting her name the Tron, uh, no, Dotcom's attempt to uh, infiltrate the security system goes awry, um, and it turns out that someone else is um, conducting a security breach. The automatic systems take over and grab the uh, teleportation pads, and this is when Brock is about to stab Presto when he gets body checked by Ramburglar. Uh, meanwhile, Gary, who had delivered the wings so that the monarch can now fly, um, uh, walks in on the copycats because he's looking for a bathroom, and it turns out that they are running an entire heist themselves because if you can clone yourself infinitely, i.e. multiple man, why do you need a team of other people? Yeah, it's an amazing reveal. I, just, I forgot to mention this with with Gary. He comes dressed as a Dwayne Reed employee, uh, Dwayne Reed is the big, like, iconic New York City pharmacy chain, and he has a badge on his shirt that says Dwayne. That's great. But yeah, Gary is interesting because Gary finds out that it's all a lie and tries to fix the system. You know, Gary Gary's trying to correct the system that has set up the monarch for failure. Right, and 
you know, bad cell reception and a passing uh, helicopter, which, you know, I was thinking to myself, like, I don't think helicopters are allowed in that particular airspace. Because, no. like, there's very specific areas in Manhattan where you can and can't have helicopters. Uh, I think police helicopters are allowed to violate that, but that's why they it's set yeah, up that way, because yeah. no one wants helicopters crashing in midtown Manhattan. Um, no. So he fails to warn the monarch. And this is where, like, when we're talking about the parallels between Rusty and the monarch, I feel like, in some ways, the monarch doesn't get the same kind of choice that Rusty does. Hmm. Like, he's definitely doing stuff in the later part of the episode. Like, he's not entirely passive. That's the wrong word for it. But he's not making sort of an informed moral choice. He's just sort of reacting to changing circumstances and, like, trying to do the one thing that he thinks is the option. Like, he's not... Right. You know what I mean? It's true. He's also working in a corrupted system in a corrupted system. Like, the guild system itself is corrupt, and what's playing out with copycats heist within a heist is a corruption of that system. Right. Um, And so uh, the monarch basically, through a very complicated series of events... Uh, gets catapulted into the safe room. Uh, this is Rusty's panic room, which is attached to his, uh, I guess, reverse Murphy bed mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that we've seen again since season one. Uh, and lo and behold, in the safe room, like he stumbles over one half of the teleporter, which turns out to be very significant later on. And then we switch back to the orgy. And Alana, take it away. <laughs> Well, it's interesting, you know, we have uh, Rusty reclining a veritable odalisque in the same pose as Burt Reynolds, uh, the late Burt Reynolds saluted from last week's episode uh, from the Cosmo spread. Um, Sorry, not Cosmo, Playboy, Playgirl. Um, But he's looking at one of the unicorn tapestries in the cloisters. They did an amazing job of depicting the actual piece of art accurately here. It is the most detailed thing I think I've seen. Um, So what are the unicorn tapestries? The one you see them in front of there is particularly, in particular in that moment, is called the Unicorn in in Captivity. Um, The tapestries were made between 1495 and 1505. They were looted in the French Revolution, speaking of breaking systems. Um, And they depict a group of men hunting a unicorn they use a maiden to lure it, which is uh, the traditional sort of mythology around how you get a unicorn. And it's really uh, the the story, like there's different, it's a comic, right? The, the tapestries are pieces of sequential art. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. That you read as you go through the room. We don't know exactly how they were hung in the first place, but there's a series of panels that tell the story of the unicorn hunt. You know, at one point they bring in the uh, maiden, who is the only one who can successfully lure a unicorn. Because she's um, pure. And she, because she's pure, and apparently, like, they have some concept of that. Um, you know, the unic- and the maiden, in this particular allegory, is Dr. Mrs. the Monarch. Um, she's, uh, she represents the maiden because she's being used to lure, uh, doc- to, to lure Dr. Venture. Rusty? Yes, thank you. Uh, into um, going in, into containment in the system. Well, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here, but um, but yeah. So the the, the 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 tapestries are an amalgam of pagan mythology and some Christian symbolism written onto them. 
But that last panel, the one we see most clearly in that scene, called The Unicorn in Captivity, is probably from a different set of tapestries than The Hunt of the Unicorn. We, certain art historians postulate this, including myself who agrees with them, uh, because it's in a different style than the others. It, um, the other tapestries are, have a much better sense of perspective, whereas The Unicorn in Captivity is quite flat and is almost medieval in just showing a figure surrounded in a field. Um, so I, it's, it's being treated in the series, I'm sorry, it's being treated in the show as being part of a series in which this is the final cell um, of, the, uh, of, the, of the sequence. Um, from the Met's own website, they describe the, the tapestry in this way. Uh, a unicorn is tethered to a tree and constrained by a fence. But the chain is not secure and the fence is low enough to leap over. The unicorn could escape if he wished. Clearly, however, the confinement is a happy one to which the ripe seed-laden pomegranates in the tree, a medieval symbol of fertility and marriage, testify. The red stains on the unicorn's flank do not appear to be blood as there are no visible wounds like those in the hunting series. Rather, they represent the juice dripping from the bursting pomegranates above. Because in one of the earlier panels, because in the last panel of the sequence that we know to be part of the sequence, the unicorn is stabbed. It's killed because that's what they do when they hunt a unicorn. Um, so when, they, when people interpret this final panel as being part of the sequence, they're implying that the unicorn is resurrected. And they actually, the, uh, the guy in the red robes, resurrected, a.k.a. Christ. Um, so the guy in the robes who's displaying them, who, by the way, is also voiced by Mark Hamill, says, you know, the unicorn has been captured and brought back from the dead. And he's safe now. He's safe in captivity. So Rusty is presented with a similar choice, too. He can choose the captivity that is marriage, i.e. captivity that includes sexual congress with the woman who he desires, the maiden in this case, who is represented by Dr. Mrs. the Monarch. Um, and within that captivity, he means he's going to give up the freedom to make whatever he invents on his own, do whatever he wants. He's going to have to play by the society's rules. He's going to have to only invent what they want him to invent. And that they will give him pleasure in and safety in exchange. Um, um, but as I said, I'm sorry? I just thought of something. Uh-huh. So, uh, Rusty has in fact died and been reborn. Yes. Because he's a clone. Yes. And, you know, in addition, right, who else is called a unicorn in this episode? Well, the monarch, yes. Right. And the monarch, you know, was in a deadly crash and survived and was mm -hmm. reborn. And, the, you know, butterflies are another sort of, you know, death and rebirth kind of oh, symbolism. Wow. And... Because the fact that, you know, there's the whole sort of super scientific fertility cure, you know, he's also got kind of, uh, you know, mother, father, and Holy Ghost figures in his life. Damn. And Rusty, you know, Rusty is a little bit more Greek in that, like, as far as we can tell, there is no Mrs. Venture. Uh, senior. Um, yes. So I was like, I, that that just occurred to me as you were talking about the Christ imagery. I was like, oh shit, man, I love this. This is great. We're like, we're we're really on a roll here. Thank you. Um, so yeah. So but so as a uh, so the unicorn in captivity, as I said, is probably from a different set of 
tapestries or it could be a single tapestry on its own. So we know that for sure that the final panel of the series is a unicorn being killed. So is Rusty in repose as a unicorn a false panel, a false end to the story, not really what's actually going to happen? Um, is it fake? A representation that's not actually a result of him being hunted? I think that's an interesting question. I don't know if Doc Hammer and Jackson Public are aware about the controversy over whether or not that final panel of the tapestry is part of the sequence or not. But that tapestry is displayed with that panel as if it was the end of the sequence. Well, I mean, given... We'll, we'll talk about this when we get to the, the post credit scene, but, um, you know, I wouldn't fake. anything past them. Uh, yeah, yeah, so... So, um, and again, you know, the, the Unicorn Reborn is a Christ symbol. So, uh, when we, like I said, he, we did have uh, Rusty call Brock Judas earlier. So Right. Um, so, meanwhile, there's also a discussion between the... And this gets back to our theme about sort of independence and individualism. That the guy in the red robe sort of is describing the scene as one of sort of being protected and given comforts. Whereas Rusty sees it as prison. He wants to take his chances in the wilderness. Um, and, uh, you know, that's kind of, you know, I think an interesting thesis statement about Rusty. Um, you mm -hmm. know, someone who's, you know, arguably been born within the system, um, you know, through the Venture family. Um, but now, like, you know, uh, wants, to, wants to make his own name. Um, and then when he says this, the guy in the red robe and the mask, uh, offers him the, uh, lady or the tiger, uh, choice, which is from Rudyard Kipling. Mm-hmm. Um, and behind, the lady is, uh, Dr. Mrs. the Monarch, um, and the tiger is a big dude wearing the knife dildo contraption, or, sorry, knife strap-on slash sheath contraption from the movie Seven. Uh, and he basically says, these are your two options. You either fuck people or you get fucked. Um, Real quick, The Lady or the Tiger is actually by Frank R. Stockton. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, My apologies yeah. To, to the estate of Frank R. Stockton. But basically it gets played as being an allegory for a problem that is unsolvable. Right. Because you can't uh, know who's who's survived. So it's in some ways like what what the uh, Red Robe Man is rolling out as being the lady or the tiger question isn't actually what we normally would consider that. Yeah, it's a false choice. Um, um, and both options are, as we said, are trapped in a system, right? Like both of you, when you're, if you only have two options, then you're in, then you're in a system. And in this fantasy, Dr. Mrs. is not actually making her own choices. Like this, this is a fantasy that Rusty's having. Is you know, it's it's it re, it's revealed later. Um, uh, but basically, the fact that she's being given to him as one of the things that could be done, he, he she's not. Gosh, and I'm really struggling to make sure that none of this comes out as sounding like anti-sex worker. This is not. This is not what I'm trying to say at all. Um, but the, the, 
Dr. Mrs. the Monarch's presence in Rusty's dream has been scripted into it either by Rusty or by Brock. She's not making an appearance in this sequence willingly. Um, and she's and not very active either. She's not saying no. anything. She's not moving. She's yep. basically a flat image. Yep. Um, so uh, then we get, you know, this is like a Rube Goldberg contraption of um, sort of motion and happenstance. So Sergeant Hatred uh, shoots the monarch because uh, he's opened up the safety room. The monarch holds up the teleporter to shield himself. The bullets fly through the other teleporter, hit the ram burglar. Uh, he falls forward uh, headfirst into the teleporter. That remote, that decapitates him. Uh, and then the other two kind of freak and grab half of the teleporter and run with it. Uh, as the copycats in the helicopter lift the whole safe room out of the building. Uh, it's like a very Fast and the Furious kind of, you know, set piece. Mm -hmm. uh, and we then find out in very quick succession, Driver X is copycat. Uh, Gary again tries to, like, warn the team and fails. Um, as everyone's running out of the building, uh, Tunnel Vision gets dragged back down the manhole cover. And I was thinking, like, is this an Evil Dead reference? Is it Aliens? Like, you know, it's... The Chud. Chud, right? And, you know, anytime someone gets pulled back down something that they've tried to escape. Uh, and then Presto Chain Show uh, tries to uh, distract Brock by turning into a Stairmaster. Yeah, because Brock is climbing out of the sores and then he climbs onto Presto as the Stairmaster. And it's so uh, it's so ludicrous. Um, and Brock just stabs Presto in the head. We know Presto bleeds blue. Um, and yeah, it's Presto was an object again and I just Presto died to save the <laughs> he others. He died for our sins? Presto died for our sins and maybe Presto is really the sacrificial lamb right. of the villain's plot. So then the fake team drives off in the Con Ed truck. Uh, the helicopter with the safe room on it uh, the cable gets winged by a lucky shot by Hatred as he falls into the rooftop pool um, the helicopter smashes into copycat suite, which I think is a Matrix reference. I mean, hmm. helicopter into the side of a big um, uh, skyscraper. Oh, yeah. And as he is falling down, uh, the monarch uh, uses the teleporter to save himself from the fall and gets teleported into the front seat of the uh, Con Ed truck uh, next to Gary. They're all screaming. And then the safe room lands in the outstretched hand statue in place of the globe that is normally there. Uh, OSI closes in on the scene, but Gary and the monarch manage to escape into the 59th Street subway station because everyone knows in New York City, no one, please can that go into the subway. Sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't Sorry. say that with a straight face. Um, so then, uh, sorry, they managed to escape into the 59th Street subway station. Uh, because, as we know, uh, the NYPD can't follow you into the subways. <laughs> uh, so that's the end of the episode. We then get a post-credit sequence where it turns out, uh, you know, Rusty is enjoying the fruits of his uh, moral compromise and the orgy. Uh, but it's actually a VR sex machine, the kind that, um, you know, is, is widely touted in the press as like a solution for incels. <laughs> the um, real solution 
Yeah. I will not. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. The, the solution is actually feminism, but whatever. Yes. Um, but so this is, this is the this one is, that involves sex robots. Solution. Yes. Well, you know, I but also like you see Rusty wearing the unicorn mask, so it's very clear. Like, oh they, shit, yeah. He, he's wearing a unicorn mask in that in that sequence, but then it's revealed that yeah, this is a VR thing, and I have to know that, um, you know, is like just thinking about the OSI deciding to build a VR sex machine is kind of unsettling. Yeah, but, I mean, the OSI have done a lot of morally compromised stuff. I mean, there's nothing wrong with building a VR sex machine. I'm just trying to imagine this, the circumstances in which OSI is like, do you know what we are going to really need to problem solve this situation? We need to build a VR sex machine. I mean, um, it's probably going to be used for some sort of, like, compromat mind control weirdness. What I'm wondering, too, then, is... Did Brock and OSI write the fantasy that Rusty experienced, or was Rusty entirely generating it from his own head? Right. I to think use we have game different terminology, um, was this uh, procedurally generated or scripted? Thank you, yes. So what do you think? Um, I'm not sure, because my memory of the episode where Rusty hooks up with Dr. Mrs. is not very strong. I don't remember whether... Um, Brock was around, like, or at least had met her. Like, does he know that they had sex? Um, or that, rather, that he was he who they had sex that they, with. That he right. thinks that they had sex, yeah. Yeah, they didn't actually have sex. She she got him with a chloroform and then um, turned him into a giant caterpillar um, for weird monarch-arching slash, slash sex play reasons. Go watch the episode. It's a good one. It's such a good episode. Although, uh, actually, the whole idea of her, again, like, she was disguising herself as an ingenue, in a way, in that episode. So we have Dr. Mrs. At that point, just Dr. Girlfriend, uh, playing the maiden in right. that as and, well. So and refusing to play the, the femme fatale. Yes, like she, exactly. She didn't like the role that, that uh, her boyfriend had written for her uh, in a scene that is even creepier now that we know they're half brothers. Yes. Yes. That's very true. So, you know, so we, so we already know that the script of believing people who look and sound like Dr. Girlfriend to be the maiden is a a script that exists in Rusty Venture's head. One way or another. Um, so yeah, that's the episode. Um, I mean, overall, I think we both liked it, right? Oh my god, I love this episode. I could just keep going and I'll spare you. Although, I, but again, like, I, part of me thinks that this was designed by, I mean, it's an amalgam of maybe Rusty's head and Brock, because like, there's pieces of information in there that I I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I, I don't know. Do you, I, I, have, I, have a, I feel like it is sort of I mean, generated. I could, like I said, I could, I could see it going either way. Like, the the... You know, is it the case that the um, uh, that whoever like they got to design this had like seen eyes wide shut, been to the cloisters, and seen that Burt Reynolds poster and seen The Shining, or was it that these are like things that they know that Rusty like finds as touchstones, 
or is this just like you know they they fill in you know uh, rich people orgy and like you know Rusty is only ever seen that in the movie so that's how he perceives it I don't know I think it's an interesting question and hopefully we'll be able to have some more information about it but yeah this episode is so rich with symbolism and I think that what it leaves us to question with respect to Rusty and Brock's relationship moving forward is really big and momentous and the parallels between Rusty and the monarch just keep coming more and more pronounced yeah okay so uh, thank you very much for having me on Thank you, as ever. Um, And I guess it's uh, reminding folks that this podcast is brought to you by Graphic Policy Radio. Graphicpolicy.com. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud. Uh, I think we're uploaded to YouTube these days as well under Graphic Policy. You can find me on Twitter at Elana underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. And Stephen, where are you? Uh, You can find me at Stephen Atwell on Twitter and at Race for the Iron Throne on uh, WordPress and Tumblr if you are into the intersection of pop culture and history. And that's Atwell with two T's and two yeah, L's. Yeah, two T's, two, uh, two E's, two L's, and two U's. So many letters. Yes. Okay, well, we'll see you guys next week, and it's us going to sign off. Uh, one, two, two three. three. Go Team Go Venture, Team Venture Brothers. Oh, sh- oh for uh, God's sakes. I think we'll All get right. it. Next week, let's try a video, video conference up? so that we can mm. we can actually sync. <laughs>